Judges chapter 3 is where we will be this evening. Judges chapter 3. God is referred to in the Scriptures as a jealous God. His anger stems from His jealous love for His people. He's like a jilted husband. He doesn't want to see Israel give up what should be their exclusive love for God to false gods, to idols. So far we have looked at the introduction to the book, chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, we saw their military failure. We learned that from the death of Joshua, after the death of Joshua and the leaders of Israel, it was not very long before Israel fell into sin and they turned away from God. They failed militarily by failing by, by avoiding to drive out the Canaanites. They had a stronghold on the land. All the major cities were taken. Israel was possessing the land for the most part. But each tribe was supposed to continue to pursue these enemies and drive them out completely. Otherwise, God knew, and we know, that, they, that Israel become like the Canaanites that they would learn Canaanite practices, they would learn Canaanite's false religion and start to be um, wooed by it and, and start to love that sort of thing and, and turn over. In fact, that's what happened. Not only did they fail militarily, chapter 1, but they also failed spiritually, chapter 2. It says in verse 10 that there arose another generation who did not know the Lord nor the things that He had done. How quickly did Israel turn to false gods when the appointed leaders of God had died? And so we're introduced in chapter 2 to this recurring cycle of evil that, Israel, that, that, that will plague Israel throughout this book, this 350 years between the time of Joshua to the time of King Saul. This cycle that comes back over and over again. Tonight we're going to see that cycle in a narrative form for the very first time. We saw what was going to happen over the whole period in chapter 2. Now we're going to see it for the first time. It's going to recur throughout the main, uh, the main body of the, the, the book, which is in chapters 3 through 18. So let's begin by reminding ourselves about this cycle. We'll look back to chapter 2 to start with, verses 11 through 19, and then we'll read our passage Tonight. So chapter 2, we just want to see the cycle that we should be looking for in our passage. And then hopefully as we read our passage, you'll be able to see it just jump out at you. So chapter 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly on the way. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So do you remember the cycle? Israel sins. That is, as a whole, the majority, the nation, they sin. They turn away from God. And then 
God brings about some sort of oppression. So Israel then is oppressed by their enemies. So sin and then oppression. And then they cry out to God. Here in verse 19, it's called groaning. Um, actually, it's in verse 18. Um, that they were groaning to God. And then, after they would groan to God, they would cry out to God, they would pray to God, basically, help us in our, in our most desperate situation, then God would send a judge or a deliverer. That's what these judges that we're going to learn about are. They're the deliverers, the rescuers. They're twelve judges, six major and six minor. And we're going to spend, obviously, more time on the major judges. There's not a whole lot on some of the minor judges. So, with that cycle in mind, let's read our passage and see if we can see that cycle in our very first deliverer. Okay? It is, the cycle again is evil, oppression, help, and then deliverance. Or a judge. So, evil, oppression, help, and deliverance. Let's read our passage, chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. See if you can see that cycle in here. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Christians, we need to guard ourselves about the, uh, against the tendency to forget God. We can be very much like Israel is here with our tendency to forget God. We'll talk about what that means and how we avoid that. But Israel's cycle that I hope you picked out as we were reading through is going to be the outline of our, of our talk tonight, of our study tonight. However, I'm going to talk about it instead of from the viewpoint of Israel, I'm going to do it from the viewpoint of God. So, when we think about it in Israel's terms, it is evil... Right, We saw that in verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then secondly, it is oppression. We see that in verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them so that He sold them into the hands of His king and they served Him for eight years. So evil, oppression. Again, this is in terms of Israel. And then what, what happens in verse 9? They cry out for help, right? And then what happens in the second part of verse 9? God sends a deliverer. So they're delivered. And guess what's going to happen after Othniel dies? They will go back again into the same cycle. Okay, So evil, oppression, uh, help, and deliverance. So that's all from Israel's perspective. But we're actually going to look at it from God's perspective. And so here's the outline for tonight's sermon. Number one, God is forgotten. God is forgotten. Number two, God is jealous. Number three, God is remembered. And number four, God is deliverer. Okay, so number one, God is forgotten. We could also name this first part of our study, verses 5 through 7. Israel does evil. This is the first step in the cycle, first stage in the cycle. But we're going to look at it in terms of God. That God is Forgotten, And there are three main reasons why they forget God. And they're found in verses 5 and 6. Well, notice verse 6. They took their daughters for themselves, that is, these pagans, as wives, and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. So those are the second and third reason. The first reason is in verse 5. The sons of Israel lived among all of these wicked people who they were supposed to wipe out. 
So there are three reasons that they forgot God. Number one, they lived among the pagans. They lived among the pagans. God told them to wipe them out. They were going to be a thorn in Israel's side if they didn't. And they disobeyed God, so they lived among the pagans. Number two, they married the pagans. This was clearly off limits according to God's standard for Israel. Number three, and this is worst of all, they served the pagan gods. You see that at the end of verse 6? And they served their gods. It's no surprise then that because they lived among these people and married these people and served their gods, it's no surprise that they forgot the true and living God. Remember their responsibility? In Deuteronomy 20 and Joshua 17 that we looked at two weeks ago, Joshua was told by Moses that they were supposed to kill everything that breathes. Why such drastic measures? And the reason is because God knew, according to Deuteronomy 20.16, that if Israel left the Canaanites alive, that the Canaanites would teach Israel how to do the detestable things that they did and that they would sin against God. So God required of them that they wipe out these people who had been wicked and had been serving false gods. God's promise to them in Joshua 23 was that that if they failed to destroy the Canaanites, God would not drive the Canaanites out from among the Israelites. That they would be a problem to Israel. And that's what we're reading about here in the book of Judges. Judges fails to obey God, and so God allows the Canaanites to live among them. Verse 7, we need to understand that following God is to live by faith. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Think about the gods that the Canaanites served. They were gods that could be seen with their eyes, that could be touched. Canaanites lived by sight, but we walk by faith, don't we? Not by sight. We trust in the God whom we cannot see, but we know Him very well. He's very real to us because we've seen Him at work in our lives We've seen Him at work in our church. We've seen Him at work throughout human history. As it's recorded here and throughout history books that we have looked at. Following God is about living by faith, not by sight. And yet, the easy thing to do is to live by sight. To believe in what we can see. And yet, God was calling them to do something much greater. And the ultimate result was that they forgot the Lord their God. Now, when we say forgot, when the text of Scripture says forgot, they didn't literally forget God, right? If they were having a quiz, have you ever heard of God? Their response wouldn't be, okay, can you remind me about Him again? Who is this God that you're talking about? Tell me about some of the things that He's done. It's not that. I can't remember. Instead, The idea of remembering and forgetting in the Scripture, and I've mentioned this before, but I want to remind you of this because it it plays into what we're looking at tonight. Remembering and forgetting in Scripture has to do with acting according to knowledge. Acting according to knowledge. Moving to action or not. For example, God remembered Abraham. When God remembered Abraham, He moved to action according to His promise to create a nation for Him. Or when God puts a rainbow in the sky. Remember the purpose of that rainbow? Is it for our benefit? No, it's actually for God's benefit. That when I look at the rainbow, I will remember my covenant with you, Noah, and with the people on the earth, that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, what does that mean? Does God forget something that... Oh, you know what? I think I made a promise before that it's a good thing that rainbow was there. Is that the sort of idea? No, it actually is the idea that God is going to move to action. Because I remember 
based on the rainbow, I'm going to move to action. In this case, it's inaction, not bringing judgment. What about when the text of Scripture says that God forgets our sins? Does God really forget our sins? No, it means that He doesn't act according to what He knows about our sin. Do you see? This is what the Scriptures are talking about when it talks about remembering and forgetting. God forgets our sins in the sense that He doesn't act according to what He knows. Second Peter 1 says that you have forgotten that he, uh, that is the person who's, who's been acting foolishly has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. In other words, we need to act according to what we know. That's the idea. And so when Israel forgets God, it's not that intellectually they had something slipped from their mind, some facts about God slipped from their minds. It was that they knew who God was, but they weren't acting according to what they knew. So we must guard ourselves against forgetting God. Not that we'll ever come to a place in our lives where we forget who God is and what He's done academically, right? But rather, that we don't act, we don't live according to what we know about God. This is what we have to guard ourselves against. Notice what Israel did at the end of verse 7. They served the Baals and the Asherah. It is possible that any one of us could turn to false gods as well. But this doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time as we gradually forget God. As we start to become hardened in the deceitfulness of our own sin. Friends, the lure, the the attraction of this world is so strong that if we are not actively remembering God and His works, we will easily be pulled away by the things of this world. And that's why the Scriptures call for us to, to spend time with one another. That we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That we ought to encourage one another day after day so that we do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we do not forget. We don't come to a place in our lives where we act in a way that's opposite of what we know. God is forgotten, number one. Number two, God is jealous. Verse 8, God is jealous. Here's the cycle. Israel falls into evil, and then they're oppressed. The reason that they're pressed is because of God. Look at verse 8. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that He sold them into the hands of this king. And they served this king for eight years. God is a jealous God. Let me explain to you why I think that God is jealous. The text says in verse 8 that His anger burned against Israel. But His anger here has a purpose. It's designed to bring them back. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 again. Chapter 2, verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. This is the cycle again. And He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Then skip down to verse 18. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had oppressed and afflicted them. Here's what God's doing. He's allowing Israel to be oppressed so that they depend upon Him. So that they get to a point where they recognize that they need God. That's exactly where God wants them to be. So that He can be moved to pity and rescue them. So that He can be their deliverer. So God is a jealous God. Now you might think that it's, that, that's pretty harsh of God to be jealous for Israel's devotion. I mean, wouldn't the most loving thing that God could do to them would be to allow them to do what they want, allow them to serve, serve whoever they want, to be tolerant of their affections for other gods? And the answer to that question is yes, but only if you deny the premise that there is only one true and living God. If you deny the premise that there is only one true God, 
then it would be unloving of God to be jealous for their devotion. It would be unloving of God to be jealous for our devotion if there are multiple gods. But if you accept the premise that there is only one true God and that He alone should be served and worshipped, then you have to recognize that the most loving thing that God can do to them and to us when we give our devotion to another is to be jealous for our affections, right? There is only one God and He alone is worthy of our love and our devotion. You see, God must be jealous because He knows and we know that He is only true God. The only true God. And He will not allow rivals. Well, we might ask, well, then why didn't God just stop them from sinning? Why didn't He just force them to stop sinning? Well, we could spend some time talking about how God doesn't coerce people to obey Him. But ultimately, I don't think that's the best question that we can ask here. A better question is, how did God deliver them from evil? How did God deliver them from evil? In this case, He allowed them to be oppressed for how many years, according to verse 8? Eight years by the king of Mesopotamia. They had sold themselves, verse 7, to these false gods, and so God let them get a taste of what they wanted. Israel, if you think that the pagan culture in which you live and pagan worship is what will satisfy you, then let me give you a taste of it. And you will realize that it is hollow. It is shallow. It is not satisfying. But rather, it's a life of bondage. And I am going to bring you to a place where you recognize that. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they were complaining about the manna and they wanted to eat meat? What did God do to them there? Remember how God responded? He said, I'll give you some meat. So much so that it's going to be coming out your nose. That's my paraphrase. But but so much so that it's going to be just, while it's in your teeth, you're going to remember how much you hate this, that it ultimately doesn't satisfy. It's actually what does satisfy is a relationship with me. Because man does not live by bread alone. He doesn't live by meat alone. We can have meaningful existence apart from food. But we can't have meaningful existence apart from God, can we? Our existence is dependent upon our relationship with God and our meaningful existence is dependent upon that relationship. And friends, isn't it interesting that sometimes God gives us exactly what we want, even if it's something evil, in order to show us what ultimately satisfies. Sometimes God gives us what we want. And God forbid that He gives us that continually. God forbid that He would ever allow us to continue to pursue that sort of thing. But here's the thing. For us as Christians, sometimes He lets us get a taste of evil that we think we want so that we recognize it doesn't satisfy and the only thing that truly satisfies is a relationship with God. Sometimes, in going after what we want, we experience the consequences that we never expected. And amazingly, the trouble that we brought upon ourselves is the very thing that God uses to wake us up, isn't it? Christian, have you ever desired something for which God said no? And you did it anyway. And later found out that it wasn't satisfying and that the best path would have been for you to trust God when He clearly told you that sin does not satisfy. And then God graciously used some sort of trouble in your life to cause you to cry out for Him, to Him for mercy. Has God ever delivered you from your evil by allowing trouble to come into your life? Praise God for that. 
praise God that He gave us the sense by waking us up with some trouble that came into our lives. He said, you're on a dangerous path. And where you're going is headed for destruction. Praise God that He used that to wake us up. God has forgotten. Secondly, God is jealous. Thirdly, God delivers. I'm sorry, God is, God is remembered. Skipped one there. God is remembered, verse 9. This is where God wants us to be. Where we come to a place where we cry out to Him. This is what Israel does in verse 9. When the trouble comes, they cry out to God for help. That's what verse 9 says. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, that's when the Lord moved to action. That's when He remembered them. In the sense that He moved to action based on based on His promise to them. So Israel sins. God sends trouble. God uses that trouble to wake them up. And after eight years of trouble, Israel finally responds the way that God desires. They cry out for help. And Christians, we are similar to Israel in that God brings us to the same place many times. And this is the best place This is exactly where God wants us. In a place where we recognize that we completely, completely depend upon Him. That we need Him for everything. We can't get through this life without Him. We can't get through this Christian life without Him. And we need to be continually dependent on Him. It wasn't that. When we came to Christ, we depended on Him at that time because we couldn't buy our salvation. We all believe that. We needed Him then, but now, now that that's been all taken care of, now I I don't need you as much, God. No, every day, every hour I need you. I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. See, this is where God wants us. When we come to a place where we cry to Him for help, God, I can't do this on my own. And so when we start to get to a place where we think we have the reins of our life, we have control, God sends a little bit of trouble say, you know what? You don't have the reins. You're not in control. I'm in control. Lean on me. Didn't this happen to the Apostle Paul even? In order to keep me from boasting in my own flesh, he said, the Lord sent me a thorn in the flesh. And three times I asked him to take it away from me. But he said, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I boast in my weakness. See, Paul, or God uses weaknesses in our lives. God uses troubles and even ongoing struggles in our lives to keep us in a place where we're doing what Israel does here momentarily. Hopefully we're doing this longer than Israel. That we're more, more far-sighted than Israel is. We recognize that we do completely depend on You and you know what, if God's going to bring trouble in our, into our lives in order for us to depend on Him, then, then we should thank God for that. God, God is remembered. God is forgotten. God is jealous. God is remembered. And then number four, when we cry out to help, God is faithful to deliver us. God is deliverer. God is deliverer. Now we're going to look at these judges and we could think, well, these judges are the deliverers. They're the ones who are the rescuers. They're the ones who save Israel from the oppression. But ultimately it's God who does it. Because it's God who sends them. It's God who sends the Spirit of the Lord upon them. God is the deliverer. All the sin and trouble and oppression and this plea for help lead to the climax of this recurring cycle. And that is that God delivers His people. God delivers His people. He never stops pursuing His people. Aren't you thankful for that? Isn't it amazing how quick God is to come to their aid? He didn't wait for a huge cry of repentance. 
He didn't wait for some great pomp and circumstance from Israel. We have this very short little reference to them crying out for help. It's almost like they just got the words out of their mouth and boom, here comes God to action. God is quick to deliver. He responds with the smallest hint of repentance, of turning. This is the way He is with us. He's quick to be merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Is He not? The means by which God delivers them is through Caleb's younger brother, whom we've already met in chapter 1. His name is Othniel. Othniel was a capable deliverer. He was already a part of the conquest of Canaan in chapter 1, verse 12, when he won a wife for himself at, the victor, at his victory here in Kiriath-Sefer. There's no wickedness mentioned on the part of, of Othniel. No lack of faith, as we're going to see. And as we start to progress, the first three judges seem to be pretty sharp people. They seem to be pretty capable deliverers. And then we're going to get to people like Gideon who lacks faith. And we're going to get to the worst of all, Samson, who's corrupt in many ways, although he does express some faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11. But Othniel seems to be a capable deliverer. Apparently, as we move farther into this history, into the book of Judges, we see that the deliverers tend to be more and more evil. But these first three are pretty, pretty solid, according to what we know. But even though Othniel is a capable deliverer, we should not come away thinking Othniel is a great deliverer. We ought to think God is a great deliverer in allowing and using a person like Othniel. Look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave king of Mesopotamia into his hand, so he prevailed over him. When we read the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in verse 10, we need to think about what this means. Now, we have to be careful because when we think the Spirit of the Lord came upon a person, we might think what? Salvation, right? person got saved. Othniel got saved there. So this is his salvation experience. Now that he's saved, that he can do these great things for God. But we shouldn't think of it in terms of Othniel getting saved. The reason we know that he's not getting saved here is because the Spirit also came on Moses long after he had been chosen by God. The Spirit came on the 70 elders, apparently after they had been at a position where they trusted God, and then Joshua, and now Othniel. And it will come upon, although it's not mentioned of every judge, I believe that it comes upon every one of these judges, these deliverers throughout the book. And then, when we get to Saul, Saul becomes king, and the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon Saul. So if we're still thinking salvation, we have to start questioning because Saul? The Spirit of the Lord came on Saul. He got saved. Really? And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, and it says that the Spirit departed from Saul and came on David. What is that talking about? Now we really have to question whether this is talking about salvation, right? It's not. Saul doesn't lose his salvation and David gains it the next day, right? That's not what's happening. Instead, we have to remember that the Spirit of the Lord coming upon these leaders is not about salvation. I would argue that it is referring to a military administration. It is regarding uh, the leadership function that they had as God-appointed leaders, as God's chosen rulers of Israel. Think about it. Moses, God's appointed ruler of Israel. The 70 elders, God's appointed rulers of Israel. Joshua, Othniel, all these judges, King Saul, and then a bunch of kings after them. This is going to happen throughout the Old Testament. And then finally, we come to Matthew chapter 4 when the Spirit comes upon who? Jesus. Is He getting saved there? Right? No, we know He's not. 
That the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. Rather, this is the appointment or, or the anointment of the Spirit. The Spirit's anointing like what happened when a king would come into power. God's king. God's leader. Here it's called the judge. But God's deliverer is appointed, is, is anointed by the Spirit, appointed by God as the ruler of His people. And that anointing that is on our Savior will never be taken away from Him. He is the ruler. He is the one who will rule on David's throne forever. Okay, so when we think that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Him, this is a special, some sort of special administrative ability that Othniel and the other judges would have in order to carry out the tasks of war, of judging the people, of carrying out their responsibilities to rescue them. Notice the result at the end of verse 10. When he went out to war, Othniel, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And then the land had rest for forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. God gave them victory. The land had rest for forty years. This is a good time for Israel. But then Othniel dies. And you will not be surprised that the next story of Ehud coming along follows Israel going back into evil and then oppression. And then them crying out to help, for help and then Ehud coming to save them. I want to leave you with a question and three points of application. First, the question. Is God the only true God? Is God the only true God? Your answer to that question will affect how you respond to what you've heard today. Maybe you don't fully buy into God's exclusive reign as the Almighty Sovereign over all things. Maybe you need a little more proof. Maybe a miracle or two would help. But think about Israel as a nation of any people group in the history of mankind. Has anyone received more clear, miraculous evidence that God exists than Israel, and yet, still, where are they today? Where does that leave them now? See, miracles do not guarantee faith, saving faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Even if you saw a dead person, Abraham says, even if your brother saw a dead person raised from the dead, they still would not believe. Do you know why? Because they've already they already have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe the scriptures, they won't believe miracles. Can I just urge you if you don't buy into the fact that there is only one true God and maybe you think you need to have more miracles that you will not believe necessarily from seeing more miracles. You have all the evidence that you need in the scriptures. If God is the only true God, then you will feel for God's desire for exclusive devotion to Himself. If you believe that God is the only true God, you will feel for His jealousy. If He is the only true God, then you will hate that He is not being worshipped by all people. Or to be more specific, you will hate that He's not being worshipped by your neighbor. You will hate that He's not being worshipped by your family member, by your co-worker, by people with whom you have contact. You will hate that they are giving their devotion to someone else that's not the true God. And you will feel for God's jealousy. God wants all people everywhere to love Him and to serve Him like He deserves. God has no rivals. He doesn't want people just to know great facts about Him. He wants them to love Him. He has no rivals and He will not allow rivals. And that means that He jealously guards our affection for Him. And He jealously pursues other worshipers. Worshipers who will come to Him and follow Him alone. No one else not putting him on a shelf with a bunch of other idols. 
God alone is God. And that will determine how we feel about His jealousy. So that's the question. Is God the only true God? Now, three points of application. Number one, God will not be forgotten. God will not be forgotten. God is not out of control. God can cause us to come to a place through secondary causation, to a place where we remember Him. And He does this often through our circumstances, often through difficult circumstances, because it's, it's, it's in times of prosperity when we forget about God. We forget that, that it was God who brought us to where we are. God will not be forgotten, but He also will not co- coerce us into serving Him. He's not going to twist our arms. Instead, He allows trouble to come for a time so that we will come to a place where we cry out to God for help. And God will send a deliverer when we cry to Him in repentance. The problem with the Old Testament deliverers was what they were sinful. Some of them extremely so, like Samson. But even the best of the Old Testament deliverers were not good enough. They were finite. Eventually, like Othniel, they all would die. And sadly, the death of the deliverer led them back into worse corruption. Right? Did you notice that in chapter 2? We're going through the cycle that after the, the judge would die, they would fall into deeper evil. What they needed was a deliverer who was without sin. And they needed a deliverer who, was, who would be able to live forever. And that's what we need, friends. And praise God, that deliverer has come. In fact, that's what His name means. He will save. He will deliver His people from their sins. We'll call Him Jesus. Because that's what He came to do, to deliver us. He is our perfect deliverer. And He will live forever. Number two, we must guard our affections. We must guard our affections. We must guard ourselves from being like Israel to the place where we're pulled away, where we're attracted to the things of this world. Pulled away by the cares of this world. God has given us, much like Israel, many gifts. And the way that we guard our affections is not by holding tightly to the gifts, the resources that He's given to us, but by holding tightly to Him, to His Word, to hide God's Word in our hearts like Dr. Towns preached on Wednesday night. It is holding tightly to His Word, not to the things. Those things are not ultimately what matter most. We can live apart from those things, but we can't live apart from a relationship with God. We can't have meaningful life apart from that relationship with God. How did Israel respond to blessing? When God would come with His Deliverer, when He would give the land rest, how would they respond in Judges? More evil. What about us? What have we done with the blessing that God has given us? Have we minimized it? Have we responded to it like Israel has with sin? Friends, we must guard our affections that we do not get pulled away by the cares of this world. And then finally, we need to understand that God has not forgotten Israel. Turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. God has not forgotten Israel. Isaiah 60. God has not forgotten Israel. By looking at Israel today, it looks like God has abandoned Israel, right? They're not in the land for the most part. They do not have great prosperity and protection. I mean, does anyone think that Israel is in a peaceful state right now? And so we have to ask ourselves, has God forgotten Israel? Has He forgotten His promise to Abraham? Has God forgotten His promise to David? No, I think it's the other way around. Israel has forgotten God. They have not acted according to what they know about God. They have rejected 
His Messiah. And so they're in a seemingly endless state of oppression. If we want to think about it like these cycles, they have fallen into evil and God has led them to trouble. God has allowed oppression to come upon them. And what do you think God is waiting for? For the third stage. For them to cry out to God for help so that He can do what? Send a deliverer. Has God forgotten Israel? No. One day, Israel will cry out to God and God will happily hear them and respond with a deliverer. And this deliverer will come down from heaven with His army of saints and angels and He will wipe out Israel's oppressors never to be heard from again. This will happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Israel will be delivered. But in that day, Israel as a nation will turn from their evil ways and they will be ushered into a 1,000-year reign of their king, of their Spirit-anointed ruler who will lead them to enjoy a favored status during that kingdom they will have a favored status as God's people. So let me just conclude by reading Isaiah chapter 60, which is a promise of that time. This follows Israel's repentance. They cry out to God for help. God, we can't do it anymore. It's not us. It's You. So we depend on You. And they'll turn in repentance as a nation to God during the tribulation period. And they will endure. They will persevere. And then these sorts of benefits will come to them and to us as Gentiles because of the favored status of Israel. So let me read this and then we'll pray. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light speaking of Israel, and king to the bright, kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come from f- come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in, a, in my wrath I struck you and in my favor I've had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings, then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation 
or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You are true to Your promises to Israel. And we take part in some of those promises. Specifically, that all the nations, all of us Gentiles, will be blessed through Israel. And we have been blessed because of one specific person who came in that family line, that kingly line, and His name is Jesus, and He delivered us from our sins. So Lord, we're grateful that You do not turn back on Your promises to us, and that You never leave us, and that You continually pursue us. And sometimes the way that You pursue us is through trials. Lord, help us to see clearly that we need You. Every hour we need You. Lord, help us to depend upon You wholly so that we don't bring upon ourselves trouble. But when trouble does come, help us to quickly turn to You. For we know that when we turn to You, You're quick to forgive. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. You're, You're a God of mercy. We praise You for that. We're thankful for how You are true to Your people Israel, and we look forward greatly to the day when Israel will be exalted and when their their land will be restored and their prosperity and that their gates will always be open signifying the peace that they have. There's nothing that needs to be guarded against. No enemies outside because we have the we will have the perfect ruler, the perfect king, Jesus ruling over us and and ruling in justice, bringing down evil as quickly as it comes up. Lord, help us to look forward to that day and to eternity to follow. Give us grace to carry on. Help us not to get drawn away by the attractions of this world. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on You and our grip on the things that last for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.